Warning. Whether it is to be Utopia or Oblivion will be a touch-and-go relay race right up to the final moment. Humanity is in the final exam as to whether or not it qualifies for continuance in the universe. Buckminster Fuller. Old Bucky Fuller said that. He's right. go live to the year 2050 where two employees of the Xenon Group are blathering endlessly while they float in their sky city, miles above the earth. Could you pass me a diamond-plated cucumber platter? Oh, my pleasure, friend. Here you go. Finest cucumber. Locally grown. Organic. Fresh from inside the sky city. Absolutely delicious. What's the temperature right now in the year 2050? Oh, I think six, seven degrees above the pre-industrial average. Yes. I mean, it is a tragedy when sea levels raise 20 feet. Uh, You have droughts in excess of a decade. Food and water shortages. It's no fun. Yeah. I mean, it's a tragedy. Not that we have to deal with that stuff up here. It's a tragedy in a sense, but in another sense, why didn't they build a sky city? It seems kind of like it's their own fault. My parents built a sky city. Why couldn't your parents? What's wrong with your bloodline? Sort of a pseudo-scientific eugenics mediated by catastrophic climate change. That's a good idea. Well, it's happening now. Say, you know, I was just reading in the uh, newspaper the other day, they estimate the death toll from preventable climate change here on Earth's surface in the year 2050 where we Mm -hmm. live. Mm -hmm. Five billion. Can you believe that? That's a lot of human life. Yeah, it's just a number at that point to me. I mean, I try not to feel like those are real human lives in the way that you and me are human lives, because then this whole facade of how this is okay would come crashing down. So I'm not, I don't do that. That's kind of stick with the idea that this is good and okay. And because I'm pretty, I'm doing great. This, these cucumbers, delicious, crisp. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some of the best. I do yoga every morning. I've got a stationary bike, but I put on a VR. It's incredible. I burn so many calories that way. I'm in great shape. Also, I was a designer baby. Oh, and it shows. It shows. So handsome. I miss the Earth sometimes, but I mean, whenever I go to the observation point where you can kind of look down over the edge onto the Earth, it, it, does, it never looks good down there. It's not a hurricane in the way. Hey, I'm trying to spy on Earth, but this big hurricane's in the way again. What is this, the third week in a row? It's almost not even worth making the trip all the way to the observation point. There's actually a mass extinction of insects happening as well, not just mammals and reptiles and fish. The only time in history where there was a mass extinction of insects before now was the Permian-Triassic extinction event. It's the largest extinction event known in the history of Earth. Wow, that's pretty cool. We're living in historic times. Yeah, pretty cool. Eh? It's neat. Sort of proud to be part of something so significant. 
Would be nice if our Sky City got in contact with another Sky City, though. Yeah, who needs them? If they can't survive in their Sky Cities, they're as bad as the surface dwellers, if you ask me. Now you're talking my language. <laughs> oh, what a life of luxury we have up here in our Sky City. And to think people tried to avert this outcome. <laughs> How quaint and stupid. Idiots. Oh, hey, actually, you mentioning wanting to avert this reminds me of my funniest favorite tape. It's this hilarious tape from sort of before the climate apocalypse. Oh, okay. And there's these two naive oafs who are talking about preventing it somehow. They're (laughs) such idiots. It's hilarious. Computer, can you lower the tape player down from the ceiling? Computer, can you lower the tape that I was talking about? Storage locker Z82. Oh, there's the tape. Oh, computer, stop. I Stop it. It's always flirting with me. Pop the tape in. See, I always have more of a friendly rivalry with the computer. I don't flirt with it. But. No, it flirts with me. <laughs> sure, sure. You're a real flirt. You're going to take the computer side on this. You put That's feelers what it always says. I'm telling Maybe you. I just asked it to lower the tape player. How is that flirting? Just It's the way you say it, not what you say. You know what? I'm, I, I don't want to listen to this. Hears. Computer, can, start the tape, please. I'm just saying, I hear what the computer hears. Welcome back, everybody. It's the show. Seriously wrong. Welcome to the show. Hey, so Aaron, a lot of the scientists' predictions about global warming were wrong. If I recall correctly, on the original models they had for losing sea ice, were like decades ahead of where they originally expected that we would be. That's not good. From my understanding, it's been continually underestimated. There's also a fear that a lot of people have about an unmodeled feedback loop that's really intense, where like, for example, you have from permafrost melting, like a bunch of methane goes into the atmosphere. Uh, Methane is... Yeah, far more of a heat-trapping greenhouse gas than carbon. Yeah, exactly. So then you can just get bumped suddenly, like way ahead of schedule, as a bunch of like methane escapes the earth from permafrost melting. Another possible like multiplier like that is if you have collapses of rainforest ecosystems where there's like logging or environmental damage or forest fires or something to the point where an ecosystem becomes destabilized and you lose a bunch of carbon sinks all at once. It's really apocalyptic and like, it's almost, uh, what's the word, like biblical? It's like all of a sudden the spiraling or this idea of an exponential turn happening because of multiple factors interacting with each other. Another place where like a bunch of carbon might just unexpectedly come from and is predicted to collapse is like there's peat moss when it gets too hot it can't live and when it dies it releases a bunch of carbon Mm. there's just like a just a bunch of different ways where a bunch of greenhouse gases can be released all at once unexpectedly but like it's never included in our models which are more conservative I've been reading this book called Climate Change by Joseph Rahm. It, it just almost seems like the ecosystem is designed to like reach a breaking point and then just accelerate. So yeah, it is sort of apocalyptic and beyond our imagination scope. It's just beyond the pale psychologically. And so I think there's a denial mechanism or a inability to fully <laughs> be there with the with the reality of that one thing triggering another triggering another and then like in rapid succession like i don't think we could fix that 
it's so mind-blowing to think about the way that all these types of natural disasters are all amplified by warming in different ways. I looked at a graph and it showed like incidences of wildfires, hurricanes, flooding, and it's just insane over the last couple decades just going continually up all of them. There's more wildfires now than there's ever been in human history. There's more hurricanes now than ever in human history. Mm. And like that is the situation that we're in. It's in and I don't know, are you optimistic about it? <laughs> Does this sound good to you? <laughs> Well, obviously, no. What we're talking about doesn't sound good to me. Because like, we know that 350 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is estimated to be like the safe maximum. The pre-industrial average is 280 parts per million. We're currently at about 405 parts per million. Honestly, though, like I, I am optimistic. I think that what we need to do, like in one way, it's very, very complicated in many ways. But in one way, it's very, very simple parameters exist that human beings can function within like this is like temperature wise we can only live in certain temperatures there's a million different parameters that are necessary to support human life and if we don't act within those parameters we will all die it's not something that like we can stand up against with the human spirit and individualistically hold up our fist and be like, no, we will live outside of the parameters of sustainability and still survive. It's just not like by definition, not we, we must comply. We must submit to what is possible. You don't think that we could just be like really bold and brash <laughs> and ignore what allows us to live and what poisons us yeah it's it sounds really obvious but it's like <laughs> and i know that we're collectively dragging our feet on this issue or i should say industry is really dragging its feet on this issue and government is really dragging its feet on this issue yeah our but, trajectory is currently in between catastrophic to unimaginably catastrophic like that's the projections for what we're <laughs> going towards yeah. is either catastrophe or catastrophe beyond our wildest dreams. Catastrophe is the good... Fingers the, crossed yeah. for just catastrophe. <laughs> We're releasing 36 gigatons of CO2 into the atmosphere every year. So 36 billion tons. Yeah, it's a lot of tons. If you're counting one Mississippi, two Mississippi, trying to count up to 36 billion, it would take you like 1,114 years. <laughs> And you wouldn't get to sleep at night. That's not good labor conditions. I'd say just 12-hour days. So then you got to take 2,000 years to do it. So if someone had started <laughs> no, at the birth it. of Let's Christ. Eight-hour days, unpaid hour lunch. Oh, God. They're still not done. <laughs> Jesus started when he was born. Eight-hour days. One, two, three, four. Each of those is a ton. And you have to do that for 3,000 years for eight-hour days to get no weekends, to, no holidays. To get to one day, you got to count on Christmas or one, sorry, one year's worth of carbon emissions in tons. I don't know. I guess that's a lot. Seems like a big number. It's an unimaginable number. Maybe instead of gigatons, we should just invent something called like a, a dollop. That's like we're only putting out three a year. It's like 3. a thousand dollops a year. That's so bad. We're just, <laughs> it's we're just <laughs> three. You just count to three. One, two, three. There, I did it. The only safe amount of dollops is zero dollops. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, honestly, what I think is... You need to go dollop negative. Barring exponential runaway situation that just couldn't do anything about, we 
are going to figure this out. And the the question is going to be how many people are going to die in the process? How long? How many degrees above the pre-industrial average are we going to get to? And how long? Four is degrees it gonna, or more. And how long is it going to stay there? A long time. See, I don't know. I think we're going to get to one point five, maybe two. But I think by the time we're we're getting there, it's going to be a lot happening. Yeah, you got faith that that humanity is going to sharpen up. Well, we fixed the ozone layer, didn't we? Or it's like it's on its way. That's true. Yeah, it looks like the estimate is that the ozone layer will be fixed by 2030. And that was something that we got together and decided to do. Yeah. So if I'd listened to all those doomsayers like you about the ozone layer a little while ago, I would have been so worried for no reason, because all we had to do was pass a law and ban CFCs and then it was fixed. Yeah. Well, getting worried was part of the reason that law was passed. Yeah, absolutely. The worry is important. That's true. And also, this is something I was thinking about, you know, like, we have all these reactionary nationalist movements growing or maybe at their peak around the world right now based on like the sphere of immigration, cultural differences, this sort of stuff is being used. Like this type of fear is being mobilized for political purposes by the right, by like the far right. But for some reason, when it comes to climate change, we're unable to mobilize people with that fear. Like that fear becomes paralyzing instead of something that motivates people to action. And, and I mean, people do take action. Like there's nonstop advocacy groups. People go on climate marches. They like this pipeline that they've been trying to put in the Trans Mountain Pipeline here in BC has been fought every step along the way. Like people are putting a ton of energy into this all the time. I don't know if that's accurate, that it's paralyzing instead of... I guess maybe this is another way of phrasing what I'm thinking, is is how can we use the reality of climate science to effectively mobilize people to action? Not necessarily using the model of other people who have used fear, just acknowledging like there's something to it, like it, it can work. Oh, um, yeah. And like, no, absolutely. Yeah. And maybe we're not making it work as much as we should. Oh, yeah. We should be afraid. Yeah, we should. <laughs> we should be afraid. Like, of we should be courageous. Future. We yeah, should yeah, be courageous yeah. in the face of that fear, but we should acknowledge the fear is valid and real and then work from there. Yeah. Part of the challenge for us as people who want to prevent our grandchildren from being burned alive and tortured by scarcity is how do we communicate this valid reason to be afraid? of inaction and then tie it to the correct actions and then build a political and social consensus that it's the right action to be taken and get people on board with the program and create like an unprecedented global collaboration to survive. I think you need a carrot and a stick. Like fear is definitely the stick and the carrot is like, look at all these cool things that we could be building that would fix the problem. Like people get very interested in new innovation and like new applications of new innovations and things that like can improve people's living standards or like create new technologies that enhance our lives in various ways like that's like a sort of positive motivation and i think that's good like that's the goal you want to run towards and the thing you want to run away from is the burning future sustainability isn't an option it's imperative and we have to submit to it And I don't usually use words like that, like submission and compliance. And I'm doing it on purpose because this is bigger than all of us. This isn't like, oh, you should submit to your boss, like human hierarchy is good or natural. Like that's where the idea of submission really freaks me out. But in terms of 
the reality of sustainability and the parameters we have to exist within. That's something that we all have to submit to. Yeah, it's, inter- it's sort of, it's like applying a metaphor of human hierarchy to human relationship to nature. Like you could call it submission in the same way that like, you have to submit to not walking off of a cliff. Exactly. And humans dream about escaping that all the time, like flying, like the people sleep and they dream about being able to fly because they want to go beyond that parameter. But we can't. Like, it, we can make machines to fly or like there's various things, but like. I never have flying dreams. I, I've only once had a dream that I could almost fly, sort of. I was like trying, but I couldn't really do it disappointing well i've had a lot of dreams where i flew a little bit but then i would like start to lose it or it would kind of be like it only worked while i believed in it kind of thing so any like self-doubt would prevent today's episode of seriously wrong is proudly brought to you by untested geoengineering anything's possible with untested geoengineering You can limit the amount of sunlight hitting the Earth by putting particulate matter in the upper stratosphere or mirrors in space. Or you can dump tons of iron in the ocean to grow phytoplankton populations, which would take carbon out of the ocean, which is currently banned by international treaties. You can make clouds brighter and whiter so they reflect more sunlight by injecting salt water in them. But the one thing that ties all these things together is that they're very untested and could possibly have huge side effects. Geoengineering. Uh, we might we might have to try it. Buckminster Fuller said once, Pollution is nothing but the resources we are not harvesting. We allow them to disperse because we're ignorant of their value. I always thought that was sort of a psychedelic idea, but definitely true in a way. It reminded me of this meme that I think is very powerful that needs to be part of the new common sense that we create in terms of like how we structure society and production and human life, which is waste equals food. Are you saying I should eat my own poo? You know, it technically your poo is decent plant food. It's food for uh, other living beings that Thank then you. their waste or their bodies becomes again food for us. The, the real world does work like this. Nature sans human generally works like this that waste products are the intake of other beings so waste equals food is a is a reality of how sustainable natural systems function and so like when we're thinking about how to organize human society and human production it's it's a parameter that needs to be followed so outputs at the end of a product use cycle need to always be useful inputs into some other new cycle they can't just be externalities they can't be carbon that we leave in the air they can't be dangerous industrial chemicals that leach into the soil or into water every output needs to be understood and considered and part of a healthy input into a new cycle. It needs to be sustainable. Another way this is framed is as cradle-to-cradle design, especially when you're talking about producing items. There's a kind of corporate phrase, cradle-to-grave, which is a phrase they use for talking about the life cycle of products. And so this is a play on that. It's just more proof that liberals are totally off their rocker and crazy. You know, you're saying that a baby grows up to become a baby? 
cradle to cradle? No, it's in, I think you need facts and logic. He, this is what cradle to cradle is. It's a biomimetic approach to the design of products and systems that models human industry on nature's processes, viewing materials as nutrients circulating in a healthy, safe metabolism. So if we were metaphorically to view the earth as a single organism, some kind of mother goddess, then all of the materials that circulate throughout it in production processes and stuff need to be contributing to a healthy metabolism of that being, a healthy process that can be maintained. Buckminster Fuller talks about the type of stuff that you're talking about, like with looking for principles of nature and then working alongside those principles. Like he said, don't fight forces, use them. And the opposite of nature is impossible. Another interesting thing he said, it seemed that the time would come evolutionarily when humans might have acquired through knowledge of generalized principles to permit a graduation from class two, entropically selfish evolution, into class one, syntropically cooperative evolution, thereafter making all the right moves for all the right reasons. One other thing I wanted to say about cradle to cradle, people in this realm use the phrase downcycling a lot to refer to certain types of recycling, which is things like a plastic computer case could be downcycled into a plastic cup, which could then be compressed and turned into a park bench or something. Like there's, there's various phases of downcycling you can do, but if there's still waste at the end of that process, then it's still insufficient. If you're not getting to that place where all outputs are useful inputs into some other system. Because once you're syntropically cooperative, you make all the right moves for all the right reasons. As we pointed out last episode, global warming isn't the only problem and we're facing a more generalized eco-apocalypse, but all this stuff is connected and global warming is a huge problem. So I think a great place to start in terms of like what we need to do is carbon capture. And like, how do we do that? How do we take carbon out of the atmosphere? A lot of plants do this process called photosynthesis, where they take carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, they mix it with sunlight and they take the carbon aspect they use the carbon as a building block to grow, and then they breathe out oxygen. Uh, it- we, we just have these natural carbon out of the air taking machines. So yeah, one, one good way to tackle too much carbon is to take some of that carbon out of the air and put it into plants by using the natural process. Yeah, like planting plants, reforestation. Well, stop, first stop getting rid of the forest. That's step one. And then step two is reforestation. And like the more dense you get forest, the more plant mass that is there. That's all carbon that's not in the air because it's in the plants. And they die and they layer on top of each other and it becomes soil and there's carbon in the soil and the ground. And that's a good thing. (laughs) All that carbon staying there in living and dead plant material. Currently, worldwide forests sequester two gigatons of CO2 per year, according to the information I was looking at also said that concerted efforts to plant new trees and replant deforested areas could increase that number by a gigaton or more. But also just not just forests, because 
coastal plants like uh, mangrove seagrasses and salt marsh vegetation all really excel at sequestering CO2 and do it at significantly more per acre than forested areas. So wet areas are another prime place for increasing vegetation, like planting more things and just like tending to those environments so that we have more life on this planet, more plant life. The more plant life we have, the better. And the fastest growing plants are the plants that remove the most CO2 from the air. So bamboo is identified as a special important plant for removing a lot of CO2 from the atmosphere because it grows very quickly um, and can be used as a building material. Yeah, that's a good point because more because other than just forests and other naturally vegetated areas by waters and such, another place where we grow plants is agriculture. And our current agricultural practices are actually really terrible for sequestering carbon because the types of plants that we grow and, and the practice of monocropping, there's very basic changes that can be made to how agriculture works that would vastly increase the amount of carbon being sunk and at the same time would be preventing the loss of soil, soil erosion. So, to, you know, still having places to grow food and sinking carbon at the same time, good things. This is stuff like reduced tilling, uh, rotating in crops that have longer roots. There's certain microbes and things that can be introduced into soil that uh, encourage the trapped carbon to stay in there rather than being released in various ways. This is a quote from Christina Jones, who's the founder of Australian-based nonprofit Amazing Carbon. Currently, our agricultural, horticultural forestry and garden soils are a net carbon source. That is, these soils are losing more carbon than they are sequestering. The potential for reversing the net movement of CO2 to the atmosphere through improved plant and soil management is immense. Managing vegetative cover in ways that enhance the capacity of soil to sequester and store large volumes of atmospheric carbons in stable forms offers a practical and almost immediate solution to some of the most challenging issues currently facing humankind. You know what I always say is, is just plant as many fucking trees as possible. Go wild. Uh, we can sort it out later. I mean, and <laughs> worst case scenario, let's say we get a little carried away. We're afraid of climate change. We planted too many trees. <laughs> What are we going to do? Well, we, got, we already know how to get rid of trees. We're like really we're good fucking at it. good at getting rid of trees. Yeah, that's not going to be true. a problem. Absolutely. <laughs> plant as many goddamn trees as you'd like. You have my permission. We should also plant trees in cities, urban forestry, and also just oh, yeah. in places. And just rip up the fucking roads. Just rip them all up. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a wonderful day when we can rip up the roads and oh. plant trees. Oh, I can't wait. Is that a real day? Is that the day where we all take our pickaxes out and just like as well, a community? I don't want to do it, like, like make a machine gun. Oh. Like maybe like symbolically, like. Yeah, I want to be there for the symbolic. We yeah, can have the, the machines handle the bulk of it, right, but yeah. symbolically we got to do some. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a couple hits for the camera. <laughs> but also, I mean, that's part like utopian climate transition. You do want to like remove areas from the road system. Like I just love the idea of I'm just imagining like my neighborhood right now with all the roads torn up and just replaced with like walkways, bike paths, gardens, grass, yeah. and, trees. There, and there's like a railed personal public transport system that replaces cars that you can use to 
move around larger areas and things that are too big to carry or people with mobility issues can use. Also, meanwhile, you know, there's this incredible mass rail transit system. You can just take bullet trains anywhere on Earth, you yes. know, and air flight is primarily for emergencies. And also there is consumer air flight is just extremely expensive and limited. Yeah, it's it's also just a very inefficient way to move. Like the only reason we don't do it now is because building an entire train infrastructure around the world is a huge project. But once uh, you have that handled. Yeah. <laughs> also, I just, I feel like there is some, this is maybe a little bit of a conservative impulse, but I feel like there's some basic validity to saying like, yeah, it takes time to get places. You know, oh. by train, it's like two days instead of by plane, it's eight hours. Oh, well, like I was thinking like maglev bullet trains be faster. Like you can go from L.A. to New York in two hours or like to the other side of the world in a few hours. That's uh, that's more the system I was thinking of. Hey, I'm all for that if that's possible. That sounds great. I wasn't being imaginative enough. But worst case scenario, let's say it takes a little less time. You have to take the train. Suck it up, buddy. You want the world to survive or what? takes two days to go to tokyo yeah i mean if it's absolutely necessary like i generally i feel like austerity yeah like <laughs> it's the- something that bothers me about the climate talk solutions like there's this kind of like glee that some people take in telling other people no and it's like well you shouldn't be having a long shower you shouldn't be doing this and i know i'm the one who's been saying we need to submit to parameters of sustainability and phrasing it in exactly that language but I do that because I believe that within those parameters, there's the potential for not just maintaining the level of convenience and quality of life that we currently have, uh, but to improve it. You know, I'm sympathetic to the eco-austerity arguments, the idea that imposing personal austerity on people has a detrimental effect on people's understanding of climate science and willing to engage with it, and also that our role as utopians is to encourage people to have, you know, the best lives possible, which involves, in many cases, like more consumption rather than poverty, which is like a low consumption lifestyle. But I think there's a there's a little bit of a tendency with that argument to conflate intentionally or unintentionally quality of life and amount of consumption. Because I think we should also be making the argument like, yes, people should have the best possible lives better than they have now, better than they've ever had in history. And that's possible. That's the goal of what we're trying to do. But at the same time, it's possible to do that while decreasing the amount of consumption. So so sort of like the North American lifestyle involves a lot of consumption where the environmental impact to quality of life trade-off is completely distorted. And if it was being... Yeah, yeah, it's completely understandable why in that situation people say, well, then you have to take away the quality of life. Like, that's the trade-off we need to make to stay within the parameters. But, uh, yeah, I think in general that's not imaginative enough, although there's almost certainly going to be specific areas and specific things where people are going to have to not do certain things. And maybe it will be taking slower trains for a while until we get the better system set up. Like, if that's what it has to be, like, that's better than a burning world, for sure. Oh, yeah, I'd definitely be on a slow train ride instead of a fast plane ride, if it meant my great-grandchildren existing instead of being burned alive. Oh, yeah. So urban forests, uh, other than just being carbon sinks, also help control air quality in cities, mitigate noise and dust levels, absorb other pollutants, and has psychological benefits. 
I like being around trees. Yeah. I would definitely. trade all these fucking roads for some trees. We got some pretty cool urban forest areas in Vancouver, like over by UBC. I can't, what's that park called? It's pretty big. The UBC Endowment Lands? Pacific Spirit Regional Park. Beautiful. And also Stanley Park is beautiful. Even Dude Chilling Park is kind of beautiful. Yeah, it'd be good if it was like a few blocks bigger and some big more trees and stuff, but yeah. Yeah, it's a small piece of crap park. Still more beautiful than a road, though. And now, two friends at a music festival. That fire dancer was insane. I swear to God, that (laughs) dancing part, the fire part. Yeah, sure, I'll do a line of that. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it. It's getting tracers, and I swear it almost spelled something out. That was, was crazy. I can't stress enough the way that the fire dancing really affected me. She wanted to sit down. It's hard to balance with the diagonalness of the ketamine. Makes things diagonal. Yep. Yeah, that's it. Oh, man, my papers yep. do. Did I tell you? It's about how uh, hemp and mushrooms are going to save the climate. Um, yes. Yeah, this is... Almost lost me there. People don't get it, man. Like, hemp, one acre can make as much paper as four acres of trees. Except it's misleading because hemp grows really fast and trees grow really slow. So it's actually way more than that. And... Surprising. Hemp doesn't need a lot of pesticides because it produces them naturally. And it's a super hardy plant, so it requires fewer fertilizers as well and lowers nutrient pollution. My boss doesn't understand what a human being is. Oh, and I hemp connect with people. can prevent soil erosion. If you're rotating it out with other crops, hemp has very long roots. And for every ton of hemp that is produced, 1.3 tons of carbon is removed from the air. If we are just making 36 gigatons of hemp every year, I don't know if there's enough farmland for that. Probably not. That would solve the problem. Yes, big problem. And then if you make clothes out of hemp instead of cotton, you know it takes 5,000 gallons of water to make one kilogram of cotton, but only takes about 750 gallons to make one kilogram of hemp. That's like almost a 90% reduction in water from cotton to hemp. Cotton's a thirsty plant. It's very thirsty. People don't drink enough water. Not nearly enough. And that's just hemp fibers. Like hemp seeds are an amazing complete protein and like people are starving. It would be really nice to um, sort of fade into the ocean now yeah just uh, like be pulled the dissolution of pulled the, under um, pulled observing out observing self into the completeness of all i feel like my yeah i feel like my body's far away i keep thinking about these yale college students from 2012 that discovered this mushroom capable of feeding itself from polyurethane and it's actually anaerobic so doesn't need oxygen and could be put into landfills to create mycelial networks that consume all of the plastic in landfills. I can't hear him at all. And then this woman, Catherine Unger, this university took plastic waste, filled these cups with it 
and mushroom spores and made oyster mushrooms, which are an edible food. And just like, you can turn plastic into food with mushrooms. Paul Stamets, he knows all about this stuff. He's a big mushrooms guy. He is trying to develop strains that would work in water to clean up oil spills. It's already demonstrated effective for spills of things like biodiesel and soil. I'm not sure why I got into smoking. It doesn't matter. P- you can even break apart PCBs. It's terrible, those PCBs. And it makes oyster mushrooms. Did you know the taste of oyster mushrooms has been described as sweet, but with the smell of licorice? That's what we can turn plastic into. My life is just like a bunch of patterns over and over and over. That's okay. And if that's not trippy enough, not only can mushrooms eat plastic, they can also replace plastics. You can. There's this company making this dope-ass styrofoam stuff, except it's not styrofoam, it's mushrooms. And completely biodegradable, super strong. You can make uh, insulation out of it which wouldn't require any safety gear to put in and has a class A flame rating without the use of any dangerous flame retardant chemicals. That's uh, you still, hey man, you okay? You, you okay? Yeah. You need some water? Yeah. Here you go, man. There's stronger ketamine than I usually I'm used to. So it's, uh, it's for horses. No, they also use it for cats. It's the smaller dose. On the issue of carbon capture, one of the sort of like techno-utopian things that people talk about for addressing climate change is carbon capture technology. And it's generally accepted that there's a need for some degree of carbon capture technology in order to keep our planet from going wildly off course because of the amount of carbon emissions. When we're talking about 36 gigatons of CO2 per year, it's hard to imagine that just stopping all of a sudden or even being greatly reduced without a long period of time. Like, it's a lot. And then to halt it seems impossible. So one of the things that fills that gap is carbon capture technology. We have very basic sort of the beginning of carbon capture technology where you have like wind turbines that separate carbon dioxide from the air and then store it. And so there's two sort of schools of thought on what to do with that. There's carbon capture and storage, which is carbon negativity. And then there's also carbon capture and then use, where the carbon is used for things like fuel or put into soft drinks. But if you capture carbon and then you put it in a soft drink or you turn it into fuel, that's not carbon negative because the carbon ultimately ends up back in the atmosphere. You have the same parts per million that you had in the first place. What we need in order to slow and stop climate catastrophe, not prevent, but reduce the impact of climate catastrophe is going carbon negative. But I I also find myself kind of like, 
weirded out by the idea of storing carbon dioxide underground or like that's one of the sort of proposals on the table is just like like in a gas form like carbon dioxide yeah just like capturing it and then just like putting it somewhere one of the places that is suggested is like underground mines that are no longer being used that are just like far underneath the earth's surface i also read something about being able to take carbon and make building materials out of it or other types of materials like furniture or like houses, things like that. They can be mixed into concrete in certain forms. And I can't remember where I was reading that, but there's some movement on that front as well. There's two companies right now that are currently doing carbon capture. One is called Climeworks, which is based out of Switzerland. And then there's Carbon Engineering, which is based here in BC. Climeworks has three plants, one of which is in Switzerland, one of which is in Iceland, one of which is in Italy. They all do different things with their carbon. One of them points the carbon towards a greenhouse to help promote the growth of plants. One injects the carbon dioxide deep below the Earth's surface where it reacts with another chemical and turns into rock. And the third is converting the carbon into methane for sale and use but it's really expensive carbon capture technology there there is a need to make this seriously way more cheap it costs between 600 and 800 dollars a ton to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere with the current technology we have that means that it would cost a minimum of 21 trillion 600 billion dollars per year to remove the carbon dioxide from the air that we're releasing, like just to go flat at our current emissions rates, it would cost over $21 trillion a year. One of the firms that is doing carbon capture, carbon engineering, says that it has proof that they can get carbon capture under the price of $100 a ton. But I know that that involves selling off the product at the end. So even on an optimistic scale, it's still very expensive. Like that's still over $3 trillion a year to become carbon neutral at the same rate of emissions we are. So even with an optimistic track on carbon capture technology, it is absolutely essential that we reduce carbon emissions if we ever want to become carbon negative. One other kind of utopian idea of natural carbon capture was this article we were sent about genetically, what's the word, cloning, re-engineering the woolly mammoth from cousin species and using that to re-grasslandify the tundra. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, according to this article, a lot of tundra land used to be what was called the mammoth steppe, and it was grasslands. And grasslands are a carbon sink in ways that tundras aren't. And the idea is that it would be possible to reintroduce not exactly woolly mammoths, but a species that's like woolly mammoths that was created using what we know about woolly mammoth DNA and gene editing of an animal that's uh, similar or related to woolly mammoths that could survive in the climate that woolly mammoths used to survive in. Reintroduce populations into those areas and through their patterns of grazing and introducing different grass species and stuff, it could change that landscape back into something more similar to what it once was. And I don't have numbers about how much carbon that would take out of the atmosphere, but... I like it because it's fucking crazy as hell. I'm all for cloning whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Like, go for it. That's great. When it comes to addressing climate change, like, you could have stuff on one hand... That it's extremely fanciful and impossible, like really, really high risk and stuff. 
cloning and reintroducing new <laughs> ancient wildlife, geoengineering, technology like carbon capture, like stuff that it's really a long shot bets. And then you, on the other hand, you, you have like culturally change our relationship to the environment and reduce carbon emissions, like slash carbon emissions by a lot by changing people's lifestyle. So like that's extremely bland. Mm. But not just by changing people's lifestyle, by changing industrial practices. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, what well, has implications for people's lifestyle? But you're you're Sometimes. right that it's at the point of production. I well, mean, my lifestyle is the same whether my electricity is coming from burning natural gas or coming from solar. But yeah, it might also mean if we wanted to get really serious about uh, reducing carbon emissions, and we determine like these are the like you were saying before, like these are the biological this is the biological yeah. imperative in front of us is to turn off these natural gas plants to move just the solar and have less energy overall. That's the uncomfortable thing. Like that's the eco austerity thing. Yeah. I think I, I feel like we can maybe get away with some of that, but I think it just seems unrealistic to me. Like it seems, it seems to me more likely that we're going to be able to implement solutions than it is that we're going to convince everyone they have to use less energy if this whole thing is like pushing a boulder uphill, that's like trying to push a boulder up a vertical incline. Yeah, it's totally <laughs> different types of impossibility when you're talking about making carbon capture viable, cloning ancient species, doing geoengineering, and then also like this hop over to like public opinion, the way politics works, yeah, receiving right, an electoral right. mandate to make people's lives less luxurious. You know, it's like that phrase, it's easier to imagine the apocalypse than the end of capitalism it's easier to imagine people polluting and using energy to their own death than agreeing to like slow down a bit because i'm, I'm i a, think the only yeah the, the, you'd have to force them to slow down like you can't just tell people we've been telling people to use less energy for decades like use less energy turn off your lights it, it's like it doesn't that's not how change happens well and most of the energy use and carbon emissions don't actually come from like individual consumers it comes from industry but like with energy specifically it seems like we have a ton of options and combined those options are more than sufficient to meet our current energy usage and exceed it by quite a bit like just combining solar geothermal wind tidal and also hydropower though that one squicks me out with the dams and like that causes issues in waterways and stuff i'm sure there's some places where it's better and worse to do it but there, there's downsides to all of them but that one's one of the ones i'm least excited about yeah but, well um, dams are useful because they generate power all the time and of power sources they're one of the better power sources but they do a lot of ecological damage when they're set up when you set up a dam and you cause a bunch of flooding, it kills a bunch of like trees and plant life that's drowned. It's not meant to be underwater. Mm. And by being underwater, it dies and then it decomposes and the carbon that built it up turns into carbon dioxide and goes into the atmosphere. So when you're establishing a dam, there's quite a bit of carbon emissions from the establishment of the dam. Yeah. But then once it's set up going forward, there's... Well, it also interrupts waterways and like migration patterns of... Uh marine life and stuff can be affected by it like that's location dependent and stuff but there's often issues with that yeah as which well. which is the good power again you know solar there's is, conflict minerals yeah so there's like a social cost to 
the manufacture of solar panels. But solar is getting cheaper and cheaper over time and looks to be a viable yes. thing in the near future. Yeah, like, like people already power their houses with solar and are energy positive, like they're giving energy back to the grid. It's totally viable. And wind is also quite viable. There's places that get a, a good chunk of their energy from wind. It's again, location dependent on like where it's more and less viable, but it's extremely viable. And the same thing with geothermal, like it's not used a lot, but the potential capacity there is huge. I can't remember what I was like. I saw some numbers that said, if we like put all of our effort into tapping all of the geothermal around the world, and we had good storage technology so that's another big if but we have enough geothermal to like do all of the energy usage of the planet many times over just alone in that one and like the sun as well like the better we get at capturing more of that energy more efficiently like the sun is just constantly beating down on us it's a limitless energy source the bottleneck is technology and how good we are at capturing it and what's the process of manufacture like so it's like it's really a political issue of how much energy we're putting into maturing these forms of energy and that's something that government has to do it can't be the private sector that's going to invest in the technology that we need to transition to an ecological society yeah no the private sector sucks at R&D on things that aren't relatively sure bets. Like if we have to do exploratory research into like various things and it might be a big money sink for a long time, as an entrepreneur, that's not a good investment. It's just not how capitalism motivates people to act. Yeah, yeah. Like the private sector is good at innovating in the ways of like, we're going to have more pixels on the screen and we're going to have a different shaped microphone or whatever. But when it comes to like high risk investment, the types of R&D that generates things that are unthinkable before they're invented, you know, going to the moon. I sort of see this as common sense, but I think it probably is beneficial to go through this. It's just like when people say, you know, capitalism, the private sector invented the iPhone, there's a little asterisk on that, which is that most of the actual individual pieces of technology that when put together create an iPhone, including face recognition technology, uh, LCD screens, the internet, it's all funded by public sector research and development money. A lot of it is through the military also. So like, sure, like the iPhone is great, all glory to Steve Jobs. But what really makes smartphones fucking incredible is how they connect to the internet. And the internet was created through tax dollar investment, high risk investments, research and development that created new technologies. And even right now, the success of green energy firms to the degree they have any success is reliant a lot on public subsidy. Yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah, we know that th and theoretically between weather on Earth, the moving of the tides, the amount of energy that the sun puts out, the amount of geothermal energy, we've got enough energy that can be theoretically captured that we can do whatever we want forever. And it's totally possible. Like in uh, 2013, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that there were few fundamental technological limits to integrating renewable energy technologies to meet most of global energy demand. Renewable energy use has grown actually much faster than even advocates uh, anticipated. In 2014, renewable sources provided 19% of total energy consumed worldwide. And in 2016, that had gone up to 
24.5%. So from 20 to 25% is a pretty good increase for two years. I'm not sure what the current numbers are. I should note, though, that this says renewable energy, and that includes biomass, which is burnt waste material, which releases CO2 into the atmosphere. It's not as bad as the entire process of pulling oil out of the ground and processing it and burning it. It is less carbon intensive than oil products still, but not as good as the other ones. But biomass is about half of those numbers. So if you don't want to include it, it went from about 10 to 12% over those two years, 2014 to 2016. So yeah, it doesn't even seem that hard to me to do this. We just have to put our foot on the gas pedal (laughs) and really get this going. Like there's many places around the world with grids that run almost exclusively on renewable energy. And at the national level, at least 30 nations already have renewable energy contributing to more than 20% of their energy supply. Mark C. Jacobson, a professor of environmental engineering at Stanford University, says that the barriers to implementing 100% renewable energy are primarily social and political, not technological or economic. And we haven't even mentioned nuclear power yet, which new technologies have made much safer and I think in certain areas is also a very viable option. This week's Seriously Wrong is brought to you by The Ocean Cleanup, a real nonprofit organization out of Switzerland that is cleaning up the ocean. Based on an invention by Dutch high school student Boyan Slat, The Ocean Cleanup has developed a solution to plastic in the oceans that doesn't use nets and so therefore doesn't scoop up fish and other sea life. The design is these massive U-shape floating booms that sit on top of the water. One way they phrase it is that it's like a mini coastline. And just like how beaches collect plastic waste, this boom passively gathers plastic waste, pulling it into the center like a giant horseshoe floating around the ocean, just kind of collecting plastic but the fish don't get caught in it because they can just swim away because it's not an enclosed thing. Ocean Cleanup's technology is autonomous. There's algorithms used to specify optimal deployment locations, but then the systems just roam kind of with the tides autonomously. The tides are taking the plastic to the places where there's the most plastic, and so that's where the booms need to go as well and they're equipped with real-time telemetry to monitor their condition, performance, and trajectory. All of that information fed back into improving how the system works. The booms are energy neutral. They rely mostly on the natural forces of the ocean and the small amounts of electronics run on solar power, and they are scalable. Each instance of this, each boom is not that expensive. And the more of them we deploy, the more cleanup there will be. It's estimated with funding that they have, they believe they can clean up half of the Pacific garbage patch in just five years. They've literally just deployed this thing, like mid-October this year, they started collecting their first plastic after a few years of uh, testing and improving the technology. Compared to any other methods people have thought of for cleaning plastic out of the ocean, it's a fraction of the cost 
That's a real organization. They just started cleaning up the ocean and assuming it works the way that they believe it will and that it seems to be working, we should give them tons of money and do this very quickly. Get all that plastic out of the ocean, feed it to mushrooms, grow food, boom. Love it. Sponsor of the show, Ocean Cleanup. Ocean Cleanup did not actually sponsor this episode. Uh, disclaimer. Thank you. One way that we can reduce carbon emissions, and before I say this, I just want to let you know I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not being a preachy vegetarian. I eat meat all the time. Some of the most destructive, vilely produced meat in the world I eat regularly. But a vegetarian or vegan diet is good for carbon emissions. There's less carbon emissions with a, a vegan or vegetarian diet. And in fact, food production is responsible for over a quarter of CO2 emissions. And if everyone adopted a vegan diet, we could re reduce those carbon emissions by as much as 70%. So by having people around the world switch to a primarily vegetarian or vegan diet, you could reduce global climate emissions by anywhere between 8 to 18%. 8 to 18% of all uh, all emissions. Yeah, that's wild. I didn't know that. I didn't know that it was uh, that effective. It's too bad that's that other kind of impossible. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's also, it's not enough for us to just like individually choose to do this. And I don't think we should necessarily go like the chlorofluorocarbon route and just phase out meat entirely. But I think restructuring, like an example of the way this stuff is all connected is like, the way a lot of meat is produced is on these massive torture farms where animals live their lives experiencing frequent agony without purpose. Yeah, feedlots. And these places are also what generates like the most methane and carbon emissions. Yeah, because the, the cows fart out a lot of methane. But when you have grazing cattle on grasslands, they're also contributing to an ecosystem that sinks carbon. And the people who are all about grass-fed beef want to make it sound like it could actually be a net negative for emissions, but most of the more realistic stuff I've looked at doesn't seem to support that. But it but it could be neutral or close to neutral, depending on the kinds of areas we choose to use to graze cattle. But this would mean multiple things. It would mean that meat gets way more expensive and because it takes so much more space to produce, it would also just, it would be impossible to produce as much as we're currently producing. So yeah, without making anybody go vegan, if we just stop subsidizing the destruction of the environment via direct subsidies to animal torture, which is a moral abomination, we could really kill a bunch of birds with one stone. Also, having animals grazing on lands versus feedlot is better, again, for soil erosion and creating topsoil, sequestering carbon. You know, I really love the idea of making meat way more expensive. That sounds perfect. That seems like a really good way to make people eat less meat in a non-coercive way. And it's sort of like the opposite of the current system where I feel like there's a lot of incentives set up to like encourage people to eat low quality meat. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. You know, I, I admire people's dedication who are vegetarians and vegans. I've never seriously attempted to do it, but I'm sort of using it as an excuse to say, you know, it's not up to the individual. It's like, it should be systemic. Like it's true. It should be systemic, but it's also true that I should put energy towards having a more ethical consumption overall. You know, I just got a wave of um, guilt for all the tortured meat I regularly eat.
I agree that people should do in any individual action that if you don't mind taking shorter showers and like you feel good about that, then you should. Yeah, definitely. It's something to feel good about if you're if you're pulling off the vegetarian lifestyle. Or if you like you wash all your clothes by hand because of the amount of energy washing machines use. <laughs> doesn't see. I'm sure there's energy efficient ways to. Well, no, I'm wait. just saying. I'm like it uses a lot of energy. Like use way less water if you wash your clothes in the sink. Anyway, go on. I encountered this idea. I'm curious what you think of it. Is encouraging and pushing organizations to adopt a institutional vegetarian pledge. In that, like, for example, you have a government that says anytime that this government pays for food, it's only non-meat. So anytime there's like a catered event where the the money was covered by the government for whatever reason, anytime that public sector people get like per diems where their lunch is paid for when Mm. they're on a trip or whatever, it always has to be vegetarian. It's always like structurally vegetarian. That sounds great. The environmentalism is always a sort of intrinsic austerity to it i think that's like what's tripping me up about the anti-eco austerity thing no matter the context even if you're like using a price signal or whatever to say like meat is super expensive now Mm. and so it's just more economically feasible to be vegetarian there's still that lack to it like it's not a negative thing i think the the future is gonna have as much meat as anybody wants yeah and it'll be zero torture I agree with that, but there might be an intermediary period of meat austerity. And my criticism of the austerity thing is more, it should be last resort. There's this like asceticism that people love, but also it's only so realistic, like how much austerity you can impose before it becomes socially and politically inviable. It's also the opposite is true. There's only so much austerity you cannot impose before it becomes materially and by the boundaries of nature implausible. Yeah, there's parameters on both ends you have to stay within, for sure. Yeah, the difference is the parameters on the social one can be moved over time. Oh, well, so can the parameters on the other, or at least the quality of life or the amount of production for the same amount of consumption, like energy consumption or efficiency allows for there to be more of a thing and stay within those ecological parameters. Yeah, I guess we, you're right, like that both can move and we probably should move both. Like we should move our expectations of consumption down socially. It'd be beneficial. It'd make people have richer lives if they had less materialist ambition. While at the same time, increasing material capacity while lowering ambition for materials sounds like a good combo. Sounds like utopia. Hi, Tattooed Daddy. Hi, Untattooed Son. How are you? I'm okay. Learned about the eco-pocalypse today at school and how we're destroying the planet and we could all die. Yeah, it's tough stuff. You know, back when I was your age, we uh, kept it ambiguous whether or not it was happening, even though we had all the evidence. And then your tattooed mother and I were faced with this decision, like, should we bring a kid into this world or not? So you were actually conceived, this is an interesting story, you were conceived in light of the eco-apocalypse and fully aware of it. Why is everyone destroying the planet? Well, the majority of the most destructive pollution and carbon emissions comes from unaccountable business dictatorships that hold more sway on politics than politics holds over them. So 
There's nothing I can do to help. Well, no, no, I want to help. Opposite. Oh, that's that's amazing. You want to help? Because I was always thinking, well, it's okay to have a kid despite climate change as long as that kid grows up to be an eco warrior. And it sounds like you're on your taking your first steps. I'm so proud. I can be a warrior. Does that mean I'll get to have tattoos like you and mommy? <laughs> well, someday, but don't get ahead of yourself. Okay. I just hate being the untattooed one in the house when you're both tattooed and cool and well, hip. Trust me, as alternative parents, we want nothing more than an alternative son. But it's got to wait. So uh, we can do a lot as one one person, son. You know, it's not sufficient. It's not enough to fix the problems. But you can have a real impact by making choices, even as small as making a dietary choice of eating much less meat or eating almost no meat. You can personally have an environmental impact there that's really meaningful. I'm not eating any more meat. Also, you can do things like ride bikes or take public transit instead of driving. You I can ride re- the bus to school. Oh, see, you're getting you're you're halfway there. This tattooed dad's proud of you, son. Oh. Even stuff like turning off the lights in your house, unplugging things when you're not using them. You know, it's net overall the impact it has on the overall system is negligible compared to some of the biggest wastes and pollution out there. But you're doing something that does matter. It has an impact, especially if it's part of a large group of people doing all the same thing. But I think Further than that, something that everyone should do is just plant a ton of trees. Just be like a gorilla tree planter. Like, don't ask permission from the city and just plant some trees on some random places. You know, direct action. That's what I always say. Throw down a bush in a park. That's your dad's style. Wow, that's so cool. Just yeah. plant trees. You're badass, dad. <laughs> well, thank you, son. They don't just hand out these tattoos. You have to pay thousands of dollars for them. Just like me and my boys roll up in a truck at night, we got a bush in the back of the truck. Stop at a public park. We dig a hole big enough for the bush. We plop it in. We put some of that dirt back. We put a little bit of fertilizer and plant food on that bad boy and give it its first watering and its new home. Get out of there. Half the time, the city doesn't even notice. Other half the time, they choose to keep it. Only one time they ripped up one of our trees. And know what? I'm happy. You know, it happens from time to time, but I like to know that there's carbon being taken out of the atmosphere as much as possible. But you can also, you know, you can be an activist. You can make demands on organizations and governments. Like you can force restaurants to go vegan. It all goes together. You know, it's all important stuff. And also, I think a really key part of the activism piece, son, is spreading the environmental common sense of letting people know that we live in an ecological world that has natural boundaries. And we can have a higher quality of life than we've ever had in human history and a a truly abundant lifestyle while at the same time functioning within these ecological limits. So we can change our own behaviors, but we also need to put pressure on institutions to make change because that's where most of the problem is coming from. Well, and the big polluters, you gotta like force them to do stuff. They don't do stuff by themselves. But there's a long storied history of us forcing them. And it always works. It sounds like there's a lot to do, but at least I know that there's a chance. You have to build the common sense, son. Everyone has to think that forcing them to do it is a good idea. Otherwise, it won't work. If everyone thinks forcing them to do it's a crap idea and you try to force them, it won't work. You, you want the guns of public opinion. You want everyone to be convinced it's the right idea. Then it goes like clockwork, son. Thanks, Dad. You're welcome, son.
other than just changing our behavior and doing the right thing and doing all the right things for all the right reasons. Yeah, acting in a syntropically cooperative way with uh, nature. The other thing that people can do is organize themselves and put pressure on institutions. You can mobilize a group of people that's larger than one towards making a measurable difference on the issue of climate change. So whether that is convincing a larger group of people of what common sense should be, that's a type of activism, or there's a type of activism where you prevent pipelines from being built or whatever, you know, like... Yeah, physically stop an industry from doing something that will lead to outside the bounds of sustainability results. These these are actions which should be prohibited and aren't prohibited by government, so people prohibit them with whatever power they can muster. You know, sometimes it's pamphleting, sometimes it's dropping a banner over the side of a building, sometimes it's physically turning off the oil tap or chaining yourself to something. Yeah, or like this mosquito fleet thing that uh, was sent to us. It's a group in the Pacific Northwest that goes out on the ocean and blockades oil tankers and other shipments and things for the oil industry just like physically getting in their way and preventing them from doing their work and at least making it much more difficult for them so it's just these direct actions on the water out there like pirate style going in stopping them from getting their shipment in which makes oil more of a hassle for industries to do like it's a public awareness campaign as well as a way to literally affect the profit margins of these company and the cost benefit analysis and continuing to destroy the environment it sounds like the mosquito squad are doing a cool mosquito thing. fleet mosquito fleet do they get arrested at the end i mean i'm what they're doing is illegal so I imagine arrest is a possibility if it hasn't happened already. From an organizing perspective, the way to turn that fear that comes from looking at the evidence as far as the trajectory that we're on environmentally is to connect that fear to anger. So like to apply a lens of responsibility for that, like the intersection between income inequality and climate change to say that, you know, climate change is caused to a great degree, by inequality of wealth and power. And companies like ExxonMobil have been aware of this for decades and decades and had the opportunity and means to act sooner than the rest of us and failed to do that because they wanted to make money. This is So connecting that to anger is from an organizational lens is probably the way to go. And then from anger to hope. So you need to talk about what can be done to address this in a real way and then connect that to urgency and talking to say you're going door to door for some sort of uh, catastrophic climate change averting project and you're saying like and you know this is a horrible situation the rich and the powerful created this situation now it's being pushed on the rest of us but there is hope because we can do this this and this and the time to act is now join our organization participate in our actions can you become a monthly supporting donor of our organization that's the organizing lens applied to this and like besides voting or voting with your dollars, both of which are you know good things to do. It's the main way that ordinary people can influence institutions. By the way, you know people shit on petitions a lot as a form of activism, and it's true they have fundamental limitations. But it's so good for organizations to collect data with, you know. So don't shit on petitions. 
yeah, you collect data and then you have a useful talking point. This many people said they want this. This many people said they want this and this is how to contact them. That's a great foothold for any organization in any context. If your organization isn't petitioning, you're missing out. My favorite form of activism. And I think our environmental demands can be summed up to three demands, you know, as activists, the three things we have to call for. Number one, plant a lot of trees, like plant hella much trees. It's time. It's number one demand. Number two, make it really expensive to do the wrong thing and make it cheap or free to do all the right things for all the right reasons. I don't have a third demand. Come to mind. If we operationalized waste equals food, just that, like that basically solves our problem. And that involves finding millions and millions of ways to make carbon dioxide useful to us. Really just put a bunch of R&D into figuring out weird, cool shit to do with carbon dioxide. Like maybe we could just use it for everything. We either need to stop putting things out as waste that can't be used as food for some other process, or we just need to find more ways to use that waste as food. There's We tackle that from both sides. And we need a major investment in like sorting technology. We need high quality sorting tech. Oh yeah, like, so we go through all the gold mines that are landfills. Totally, and, yeah. yeah. There's, there's lots of great stuff in the landfill if you sort right. And also sequestering carbon from the atmosphere is a type of sorting, sorting <laughs> particles and then only taking the carbon dioxide. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah. So we need a lot of sorters. Sorting is the next big frontier, I think. Yeah, no, yeah, that is interesting because it's hard. I, I think you might need AI to do that effectively because right now humans can do it pretty well, but they're, it's inefficient and who wants to do that? Yeah, well, I, I think nano sorting would be really nano like oh yeah (laughs) not just sorting by type but sorting by particle yeah now you're talking hashtag there are parameters and you have to stay within them that's catchy thanks that's gonna pick up (laughs) that tag's gonna blow up maybe it could just be shortened to hashtag there are parameters but people have to know what it's referring to Mm -hmm. or you could just be hashtag parameters or hashtag params mind your peas peas short for parameters Tattooed dad? Uh, yes, untattooed son. I was wondering, what can the governments do to help avert ecopocalypse? Well, that's a great question, son. Thanks for asking. I'm really happy to answer it, too. One of the things that they've got to do is price carbon emissions and put high royalties on fossil fuel resource extraction. They need to end subsidies for polluters and fossil fuel companies and instead put subsidies into renewables, maybe even at the consumer end. Uh, They need to invest in high-risk research around alternative energy, energy efficiency, carbon capture technology, low-carbon building materials, and other essential tools for transitioning to a carbon-balanced world. They need to shut down coal plants, natural gas plants, and other fossil fuel plants uh, with the highest emitters targeted first. And if the technology becomes available to capture emissions at the source, they should utilize that to the highest degree possible. They should be retrofitting buildings for energy efficiency, upgrading infrastructure to decrease energy usage and carbon emissions in the future, make a system to incentivize people moving closer to their actual workplaces because a shorter commute's better for the world than a longer commute. It's also better for people's mental health. 
On a larger scale, you know, governments can work with other nations and major stakeholders to develop strategies to finance a large-scale energy transition, maximize the chances of human survival in the face of ecopocalypse is something we should definitely put resources into, and it's something that governments, now governments are massive, they have the, ma the ability to take out huge loans for lower interest rates, they have the ability to point resources in directions and follow through on things. They're really our best shot with all their flaws of targeting some of the big problems around climate change. And if they can work together with other nations and stakeholders, especially around some of the innovation pieces and collaboration, that would be really, really wonderful, Sun. Also, arguably should stop the manufacture of products which contribute a large degree to climate change, like gasoline-powered cars, devote large portions of the world to be reforested, create more, just, you know, plant, you know what I always say, plant trees. They could plant a lot of friggin' trees. They could plant more trees than we could ever imagine. They could just be like planting trees, planting trees, planting trees. And people could move to big socialist city-states where they have access to post-scarcity technology and a higher standard of living than ever been experienced by human beings before. And we can mobilize international resources on the largest scale in human history to go to war with the possibility of human extinction. Um, and spend unprecedented amount of, amounts of money and time ensuring human survival uh, and focus as much of humanity's time and energy and attention and talent towards the halting of global warming, making the human lifestyle egalitarian and sustainable in the shortest amount of time, and altering our relationship to the natural world to ensure the flourishing of not just human beings, but all life on Earth. That's what they can do in the government, son. Okay, Dad. Do you want to go plant a tree? Hell yeah, my boy. You're making me proud again. Yay, I'm going to use a shovel and dig a hole. Put a tree in the hole. And then the tree's going to grow and t take carbon out of the air. So proud I'm of so my excited. fucking son. Yay! You know what Planting I always say? Trees. I Yay. always say just plant as many friggin' trees as possible. It doesn't matter. Just Planting trees, planting trees. Just, We're going to plant all the friggin' trees. Throw trees everywhere. Just don't even think about it too much. Just drop them off. Whee! Trees! There's no such thing as too many trees right now. Dad, can we plant a tree in the house? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And now it's time for the Seriously Wrong Quickie, Quick Minute, Two Minute, Three Question, Quick Quiz. This is the part of the show where I ask you three questions. And if you get all three right, you win. And you get to feel really good about yourself. And if you lose, then you have to feel bad about yourself. But only for one second. Here's the quiz. Question number one. How many of our current ecological problems are intractable from a technical perspective? Which problems don't we have the technology and the understanding, engineering know-how to fix if we wanted to? So let you decide. If you said zero, you're right. Pretty much any ecological crisis, you type into Google along with the word solution will find some technology, some new way of doing something that people are creating to fix this problem. From putting more resources into desalinization efforts, which Israel has had some success with recently, to Cora balls, which are basically laundry balls that prevent the polyesters in 
clothing, from shedding microplastic fibers, we have a way to sort these out. We just have to implement the solutions. So if you got that right, you have one point. Quiz question number two. When we make the government do this, how should we make the government pay for it? I'll let you think about it. And the answer is, we should appropriate the ill-gotten spoils from all of the oil companies and other private industrial enterprises who knew about this problem for decades and not only did nothing to fix it, they participated in it knowingly while using false science to trick the public into thinking it might not be a big deal. They caused this, they should pay for it. If you got that right, add one point. Quiz question number three, the last question, what should we do when we're feeling down about climate change, when we don't know whether it's possible, when we feel helpless in the face of it? What's the first step we should take as individuals fighting this monstrosity? This one's a bit tougher, I think. A lot of people don't get this one. The answer is, as Mr. Rogers said, look for the helpers. There are so many people all around the world who care about this problem and who spend all of their time trying to work on it, on every aspect of it. People are dedicating their lives to making change, making progress. We can't forget that and we can't downplay that just because these other people, these, these industry owners, caused this problem. It's just as important to look for the helpers and if you can, to help them yourself with your time, with your money, with your conversations, with your organizing. There's already a mass movement underway to fix this thing. Look for the helpers. Mr. Rogers was right. And if you were right and you got that answer, you can give yourself one point. If you didn't get all three questions right, you have to feel bad for one second. One. And now you're done. Feel good again. Thank you, everyone. That was the quiz. On with the show. Computer, stop tape. Oh, the first time I listened to that hilarious tape. I, I was about your age. Grandpa, I don't understand why you find that tape so funny. <laughs> It's just so, so stupid. It's funny. How come we stopped listening to the tape before the end part where they say that if you donate $6 a month to them on Patreon, that it would help their show continue and get access to bonus episodes in a secret Facebook group? Uh, we don't listen to that anymore. Want to support independent leftist media producers? Look, look, look. We all wish we could have donated to the seriously wrong Patreon when there was still time. Okay. Okay, but Grandpa. The fact of the matter is, it's 2085. They're long dead. Everyone who ever listened to them is long dead. Right. So why tease ourselves with the thought of that sick Facebook group and all those bonus episodes? My yeah, God. I understand they were lost to time. I would do anything to access that bonus content, boy. But it's gone. It's gone like the giraffes. It's gone like the walruses. It's gone like... A like most human beings, 
Except for us. I'm really glad we're on the Sky City. Oh, me too. And also that we weren't on the other Sky Cities. Well, I got faith those Sky Cities are still ticking out there. Still doing their thing. We're doing ours. We did come across the ruins of one on that mountain once. I'm sure we've lost a couple, but we're not the only ones. We're not the only Sky City. I, I don't think so. And we're going to last forever? Oh, yeah. We're going to last to the end of time. We're safe up here. We- we're always going to be able to look down at the window at the burning world below. Our money protected us. The naive people who wanted to go on a different course, they perished. We persevered. And I'm not supposed to think about the billions dead, right, Grandpa? No. Oh, yeah, you don't want to, uh, you don't want to be dwelling with those thoughts. Okay, I won't. I'm going to go play. All right, enjoy your youth, grandson. Oh, time goes so fast in the floating sky city with all of our material needs met forever we're safe the end Next time on Seriously Wrong, in the 1960s, Buckminster Fuller proposed a great logistics game, the World Peace Game, which he later shortened to simply the World Game, that was intended to be a tool that would facilitate a comprehensive anticipatory design science approach to the problems of the world. We are, in Fuller's words, on board spaceship Earth, and the illogic of 200 nation-state admirals all trying to steer the spaceship in different directions is made clear through the metaphor, as well as in Fuller's more caustic assessment of nation-states as blood clots in the world's global metabolism. Obviously intended as a very serious tool, Fuller chose to call his vision a game because he wanted it to be seen as something that was accessible to everyone, not just the elite few in the power structure who thought they were running the show. Fuller wanted a tool that would be accessible to everyone, whose findings would be widely disseminated to the masses through free press, and which would, through his groundswell of public vetting and acceptance of solutions to society's problems, ultimately force the political process to move in the direction that values imagination and problem-solving skills of those playing the democratically open world game dictated. The world game that Fuller envisioned was to be a place where individuals or teams of people came and competed, or cooperated, to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone. Sounds like a really good game. Yeah, he's right. We gotta score some points on this one. Catastrophic climate change is ahead on the board, but you know, it's just the second quarter. But it's go time.